You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. Now, Savage has just released their new shotgun called the Renegade. The Renegade is tough, reliable, and ready for anything. Whether you're busting clays, dropping ducks, or whacking turkeys, Renegade is built to withstand tough use in extreme conditions. For more information about the Renegade shotgun, visit savagearms.com slash renegade welcome ladies and gentlemen to the michigan sportsman's podcast your number one place to go for all your hunting and fishing information tips and tricks conservation practices and much much more i'm your host james stevens so let's get this thing started Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Michigan Sportsman's Podcast. I'm your host, James Stevens, and today, despite all the COVID-19 and political randomness that's floating around social media and all over the news, hopefully today we can get your guys' minds off of that and talk some turkeys because it is becoming that time of the year again. It is, uh, it's getting a little warmer. We're starting to get those spring rains and things are starting to green up. I know they are in my area. The uh, Some of the maple trees that I have in my yard are starting to bud out. So that's really cool to see. It really gets me excited for this time of the year. I would say this is my second favorite part of the year is spring green up. Um, fall being the first one obvious for obvious reasons. But it's super cool to me to watch kind of everything come back to life and and really just green back up again it's super cool and nothing really beats a a Saturday or Sunday morning or any day of the week for that matter hearing a turkey gobble off the roost I mean that'll give anybody goosebumps so let's just jump into this episode with Aaron Um, I really enjoyed it I hope you guys do too so in the meantime let's get him on the phone and now we got Aaron on the phone with us Aaron how we doing today I'm doing good how are you I'm doing phenomenal given the uh COVID-19 circumstances is, uh, how's the family holding up with that? Family's doing good. Uh, it's a little crazy. I've been working at home for the last couple of weeks, so that's got its own challenges. As much as you think working from home would be cool, it's, it's, uh, missing that social interaction with everybody in the office is, uh, 
something that uh, I've been craving. So I'm getting a little getting a little stir crazy, but uh, things are good. Everyone's staying healthy. That's good. That's good. So well, let's just jump right into it. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself and, and let our listeners know, like you know, what you do for a living and and maybe your little background on turkey hunting. Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Aaron. Uh, I am by profession uh, a key account manager for Europe, Mexico, uh, and Brazil for testing equipment for the automotive, basically anything transportation, uh, the transportation industry. So um, I uh, I do that for a living. Uh, that keeps me pretty busy. Uh, I have a wife, uh, a two-year-old son, and they keep me busy as well. And as far as hunting goes, I uh, started at a pretty young age, uh, probably, well, actually, it was a little a little later in life, I'd say probably about 1920, I, I started hunting. I didn't start turkey hunting until probably about six years ago. I had a good friend introduce me to it. I kind of tagged along with him and then kind of just fell in love with uh, the run and gun style hunting that turkey is uh the you know the calling aspect and trying to locate where they are and getting set up so i fell in love with it and then just started doing it every year here in michigan you know we have to apply for you know the the spring turkey tag and um fortunately i've been drawn on some pretty prime dates so the last couple years i've had some decent luck with it but uh yeah so that's kind of just a quick introduction on myself um you know if uh I have, uh, I started my own YouTube channel a while back. It's something that, uh, videography and just trying to capture hunts has always been a big passion of mine. So I just try to, uh, get out as much as possible, create content and, um, you know, share the experience. Very, very cool. So speaking of the drawing system that Michigan has, what, what are your thoughts on that? And can you kind of maybe explain how that process works? Because myself, Personally, I've never uh, did the drawing. Um, I seem like I always forget, and then when I do think about it, it's conveniently two or three days after the deadline that I should have had my yeah. application in. I think that that's happened to me probably four years in a row now, and you'd think I'd learn, but I just haven't. So how does that whole process work? And, you know, maybe if you know the dates, that would be cool, but, you know, how's that whole situation play out? So, yeah, I'm actually, uh, as you're talking about that, I'm pulling up on my calendar because I always have a, a set reminder on when I need to apply for my turkey licenses because I'm, I'm, I, I did the same thing uh, when I first started out. I missed the date a couple times, and then, uh, you know, if you do miss the date and you can't get in before the deadline, basically, you know, you're, you're left with whatever is left over for that area. And I actually got skunked. I actually, I can't find the date. I could look it up though, but uh, I actually got skunked for a fall turkey tag uh, two years ago. And uh, for fall, you can, you know, you can shoot them with a bow. You can shoot them from an elevated tree stand. Uh, like I said, I got skunked. And of course I had a, a nice size Tom come within 10 yards of my tree stand. And, uh, I just had to sit there and watch him. But uh, for the spring, um, I think it's like right around February is when the, the drawing is, and then they let you know sometime in March. So you basically pick two different dates. Um, I always personally try to aim for the earlier. Uh, I guess my opinion is, or, or the, the strategy behind the dates that I pick is the earlier I go, the birds have been a little less pressured because I hunt 
state land. I don't have any private, I don't own any land. So uh, that's, that's pretty much where I'm focusing the majority of my efforts when I'm looking for birds. So uh, like I said, I try to go as early as possible just to, to get those birds that are unpressured. And then you also have the ability to select a second date uh, or a second stretch of days uh, for a hunt. So if you don't get your first pick, you get your second pick, hopefully. And then if you miss all of them, then you you go in and you try to score some leftover tags. Right. Yeah, that's what I've had to do, unfortunately. And my giving my job that I had, um, I quit that. I was a truck driver and working 60 hours a week and it was just you know you really can't get out during the weekday so i always chose the season that had the most weekends in it and it seemed Mm -hmm. like it was always later in the year and yeah the birds were just already very well educated by then um so do you agree like maybe on a personal note do you agree like how the state has the uh the system set up like the dates wise or would you change anything about the how they have the dates set in the different seasons? Uh, you know, the only thing that I would maybe like to see is more more licenses available in the fall, um, especially for areas that have a lot of turkeys. Uh, I think that could be a good improvement. Um, as far as like the spring turkey hunting setup, I've been you know I've always I've always scored the first pick or my first choice so um you know for me i've never had a negative experience to kind of say i would prefer to be in a different way so yeah that makes sense very cool so all right it's opening day of turkey season you're excited you probably called in sick to work you know nobody knows what you're gonna do and what's your what's your setup um I guess let's start with the physical firearm. Are you know, are you hunting them with a shotgun, a bow? Do you prefer one or the other? Um, what what's that setup look like? So I I always use uh, my eight seventy express. It's just the pump. It's a twelve gauge. I put a full full choke on the front of it. It's a it's a turkey choke just to help tighten that pattern out at. Uh, further distances and then uh last year i ran some winchester long beards it was a five shot three inch shell uh, and that seemed to work great um i patterned the gun worked good uh took a turkey with it worked great um but that's that's typically my go-to setup i've always had some interest in trying to do uh a a bow hunt for turkey but again kind of doing the run and gun style out on the public land with some pressured birds uh, be a little harder. I think it, you'd probably have better luck maybe on uh, private land, you know, when you're sitting in a pop-up blind versus the run and gun style. Right. So speaking of the run and gun part of it, kind of describe what your run and gun setup looks like. Cause the experience that I have is I guess kind of run and gun also. Um, I've, I do hunt private land, but it's very highly pressured if that makes sense by the surrounding areas a lot of guys in that area like that's what they don't deer hunt but they turkey hunt so i am like constantly bouncing around but what's what's your setup look like for that so for me i have like uh the i'd say the last six years i've kind of gone to the same area so 
I know that area really well. I kind of know where the turkeys will be in the morning or at least have a good general idea where they are. So my first play is obviously get there early. I like to get there, uh, you know, an hour before sunup just so I can kind of work my way back to that area and kind of get set up in a position where I have a good feeling those birds are going to be on my way in. I'll kind of sound off on the crow call and the owl call a little bit just to see if I could get them to respond and and have a, a better idea of where they're roosting and then from there i try to make a play on where i think they're going to show up um and use some calling strategies to try to pull them in as well uh but uh usually my go-to is setting up on either some clear-cut corn or uh, an open field that's got some vegetation hopefully right in like in close proximity to that roost tree okay so I know my personal favorite is that first crow call in the morning to get them all riled up. Is that not the coolest thing in the wor- in the woods? It definitely gets the blood flowing. Uh, hearing that gobble is, I mean, turkeys are amazing birds, man. They're so beautiful and um, just the color they carry and how vocal they, they can be and how vocal they are. I mean, it is, it is, uh, it gets the blood flowing when you hear one gobble first thing in the morning. Oh, absolutely. I know, like I said, that that's my favorite part. And I, actually, last year, I went out, I believe it was a Sunday morning, and I was changing my pants at the truck, and my belt buckle bounced off the tailgate. This is a true story. I can't, I'm, I'm not making this up. My belt buckle bounced off the tailgate, and I got a shot gobble from it. I it, it was either a shot gobble or a coincidence, but I'm going with a shot gobble. And that was by far one of the coolest things I've ever experienced just from a belt buckle. Cause there's so many different guys out there that claim like owl calls work best or crow calls or train horns, whatever. I can say a belt buckle works for me. Yeah. I'm not surprised. It's, it's funny what they'll actually sound off to early in the morning. Oh yeah. So are you running, uh, decoys or anything? Yeah, I do carry some decoys. Um, I've never had, I've never called a turkey into a decoy though, but I have, I do run them. Um, both times, uh, that I've shot a turkey, uh, in the six years that I've hunted, I've gotten two birds. Um, and both times one, I didn't even call one in the the second time i called it in but no decoy set up but yes i do i do try to utilize the decoys okay and are you setting those up in a specific pattern or are you just kind of you know i know it's a run and gun set so you're kind of in a hurry i know from my personal experiences you i guess i really don't think about the pattern as much but is there are you putting any thought processes into that situation no, not really. I mean, I'm just kind of scattering them out. The one thing that I do try to do uh, is I try not to set them up directly in front of me. Uh, I try to put them off to, at, you know, on, on an angle. So um, if that's, I mean, I'm trying to think about how to say that so, you know, people can visualize it. But I just try not to put them directly in front of me because obviously if a bird's coming straight in on you, uh, there's a good probability that they'll they'll see your movement when you're either trying to call or set up for a shot. So uh, for me, I either try to put them off to the left or put them off to the right 
just so they stay focused on that, you know, on the decoys if they were to come in. And then I still have the ability to, to, to get in for a shot. So, yeah, I try to, like I said, I just try to set them up so they're not directly positioned right in front of me. So uh, if a bird is coming in, uh, it's not going to see my movement when I either try to try to do a call or try to uh, get set up to in position to make a shot. And what kind of uh, decoys do you have? Like, are you running so two, I, like, two hens and a, a tom, or, like, what's what's that look like? So last year I ran two hens. Uh, I have a Primo's Funky Jake. It's just uh, he's not uh, he's not in like a strut position or anything. He's kind of just standing there. He's just uh, he looks like a Jake. Uh, so I use that, and then also I have a turkey that's got the tail fan, uh, and he's in a strut position. So those are the ones that I ran last year, and then the hens are kind of just your cheap Walmart hens. Uh, you know, kind of the foam ones you just stick in the ground and hopefully you don't get a big gust of wind and they blow away. <laughs> yep. Being the run and gun, it's kind of hard to get to the, you know, the expensive plastic ones and still stay light and not have to carry a ton of stuff, you know? So that's typically why I, I lean towards those type of, uh, those type of decoys. Sure. And I guess what's your, What's your go-to call to really, you know, let's just say you kind of got one maybe hung up at 60, 70 yards and he's just not really totally convinced. What's that one call that you're going to throw at him that, you know, you think is just, oh, I'm just going to drop a bomb. This is going to work. What's that call? So I have a, a Quaker boy trigger finger call. It's kind of like a box call, but it doesn't have that that super high pitch that a traditional box call has. Uh, and that thing has been unbelievably consistent for me. It's like, I can do a purr off that thing and it sounds the same every single time. And for me, that call has drawn in more turkeys than any call in my bag. Now, last year I went over, well, I actually picked up a, uh, a different slate call and it was kind of it's kind of like middle of the road as far as like price point goes i wasn't going for anything super expensive uh but i didn't want anything super cheap so i probably paid about 40 bucks for it and i actually called the turkey that i shot last year i called him in with that call and just doing a couple uh a couple clucks uh pulled that turkey in probably from i don't know it was probably like 70 yards he came in and committed very, very but cool. my go-to is that that Quaker box or Quaker boy trigger finger. So is that like? Do you mount that on your gun? I've never even heard of that called. Do you like mount it on your gun or what's what's that look nope. like? It's just it's it's actually it's just big enough, or I should say, it's just small enough to kind of fit in your hand. Uh, and then it's got uh, it's got a, a cutout in the center, and it actually has. Uh, like a small spring that pushes up against one side and there's a piece of wood that is positioned on almost like a pyramid uh, shaped uh, piece of wood that actually that's where you're getting your sound from so it, it, it sits on that and then it has just a plastic slider where you have a, a piece of wood positioned on that pyramid style piece of wood on the very bottom of that cutout in that box and then you just use your finger and 
just almost just like a trigger. You just pull it down and depending on how quick you move it or how slow you move it will dictate the sound that you're going to get. So the slower, uh, slower you move it, you'll get the purr sound. And then you can, uh, if you just kind of quickly hit it, that's where you'll get your, your, uh, your cluck sound. And then, you know, if you go real rapid, that's where you get your traditional turkey sound. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I need all the help I can get in the calling department because I can't call to save anybody's life. It's it's actually very sad to hear me <laughs> try to call because <laughs> I've tried and tried, and I just I always end up just calling a buddy of mine and just saying, hey, like, can you help me because I can't do this. Yeah, one thing that I've definitely learned over the last you know, few turkey hunts is I've spent more time recently practicing calls before my hunt. Uh, whereas before, you know, when I was a beginner turkey hunter uh, and inexperienced, I would just go out there and wing it. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't practice the calls at all. <laughs> and I had, I definitely had more, more failures than success. Right. So do you mess with like diaphragm calls or, or anything else like call wise? You know, I, I've tried diaphragms and I've tried, I, I always, I like the idea of a diaphragm call because I, what I really like about it is you can be, you can get set up and be, be ready on your gun with both hands and still call with making very little movement with a diaphragm call versus some, you know, a slate call or, or a box call, but I have never been able to master the sound of a, a diaphragm call. And I, you know, I, I've never, I, I, it's probably more, I don't have the commitment to, to, to just try it on a daily basis. So no, I've never, like I said, I've tried them, have never had good success with them. So uh, I just leave them at home and in my call box and never use them. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of guys have that one box of just full of random calls, but yeah, they're all junk, whatever. So when when you're going out in the morning like do you do a lot of scouting for the turkeys um i know you said that you've you know you go back to the same area predominantly but are you like scouting for them and and looking for roosts and stuff like that uh i haven't done a ton of preseason scouting uh last year i did do some e-scouting on a spot that uh that looked like it set up really well for turkey just based on uh, the terrain that was there, uh, there was some water in, in close proximity and just uh, a ton of heavy timber. And based on what I was seeing on on the map, I had realized that there was at probably some point some corn in that field. So I had a good idea that there was going to be turkey in that area. But uh, really, I've never done any pre-season, pre- pre-season scouting. Like I said, the area that I go to uh, consistently you know, I, I have a, a solid idea of where those birds are going to be and, and kind of how they're moving and where they're roosting at. So, um, I've never done any, any type of real preseason boots on the ground scouting for Turkey. Okay. So if you're, you know, you just brought up e-scouting, what are you looking for when you're e-scouting and you know, the terrain? Cause where I'm from down here, it is flat. There's yeah. like, I look at my Onyx map and it, there's, I have one giant circle and that's it. That's all. I, it's just yeah. flat. So what, I guess, explain that to me. Cause I'm actually curious about that. How, what are you looking for terrain wise? 
Yeah, so it's not so much necessarily the terrain, but the area that I had found when e-scouting just had had some decent elevation changes uh, and some pretty steep hills, uh, which is rare. You know, I'm I'm in the same boat as you are. And typically, I mean, when you're talking an elevation change, you got like a a small hill. It's nothing steep. It's nothing you know drastic. Uh, but this this area had some decent elevation change with some water nearby. And like I said, it was heavy timber. And really what made me hone in on that spot was just the field, how big the field was and how it was surrounded by timber. It just looked like a spot that was going to lay up well for Turkey. Uh, so I started to kind of just scout that area uh, on my Onyx maps and uh, just, just look to, to try to get a feel for where the birds might be. And I kind of just, just, you know, it's, it's really trial and error. You know what I mean? You really, especially when e-scouting, you have no idea what you're going to walk into. You may find an area that looks like it could be a solid bird spot. And then you get there and you don't see any sign, you know, you don't hear any birds and you don't see anything. That's a complete bust, but sometimes it pays off. And last year it, it did for me. That's very, very cool. So when do you think, I guess back on the terrain feature side of it, do you think birds use terrain more or I guess I really don't know how to ask that question. Would you say like birds might use ridges and, and spurs into fields and stuff like that more? Or would, do you think they're kind of just like now creatures of least resistance and, and don't really want to mess with that? No, I think I think with the terrain aspect of it, I think um, I think birds kind of do tend to stick to more areas, like you said, the the ridges, because I think it gives them the ability to to find uh, a little more cover. And then you know, with turkeys having great eyesight, obviously, if something were to to pop up on a ridge and say they were on the lower elevation side of that ridge, I mean, there's a good chance that they're going to be able to see anything coming before you see them. Uh, so I, I do think that, that turkeys will use uh, ridges and elevation changes to their advantage. Uh, I do think that, like, especially when it comes to a roost site, I think uh, if you had a lot of elevation and a lot of ridges and valleys in a, a specific location, that would definitely be uh, an area that I would probably focus my preseason scouting on to see if you could locate some, some turkey tracks, droppings, or, or even feathers underneath trees, which are all obviously solid signs of a roost spot. So what other, like, have you heard of any myths about turkeys? You know, cause a lot of people claim that they're almost, they're really smart, but then they're also really stupid as well. So what, what's your, what have you found any myths about them? No, no myths per se. I guess like the one myth that I recently learned or, um, yeah, I guess, I guess you could call it a myth. I mean, it was just basically beard length determines a turkey's age. And, uh, just recently, um, I was doing a bunch of research on this and, uh, come to find out, you know, it's not a solid indicator if you're dealing with a mature bird versus an immature bird based on beard length, obviously, you know, you'll have your Jake, right. Who's got a short stubby beard coming out of his breast breast area. But, uh, you know, if you have one bird that's, you know, you could have an extremely old Tom 
that has a short beard just because of how coarse the bristles are and, you know, uh, being flying in and out of trees, walking on the ground, escaping predators. Sometimes those bristles uh, have the tendency to kind of snap off. So you could have like a short, mild beard and may think like, hey, that's a pretty, you know, that's it's not a Jake, but he's not a super mature time. And, and you know, in reality, he is. Uh, so that was the one myth that I, I recently uh, stumbled across, like I said, doing some research on some birds. Okay, yeah, because I heard too that uh, birds will actually, their beards will get shorter during the winter because they're dragging on the like snow and the ice and stuff like that, and it actually gets frostbite. Have you ever heard of that? No, I didn't, but it definitely makes sense. Yeah, I had uh, one of my taxidermist buddies, uh, there was I stopped in to to talk to him and there was a giant bird in there and and I said well what happened because the bottom of the beard like the tips were were gray and I you know kind of just made a smart comment like you know this thing must have been super old if he's turning gray and he said no actually because I think it was a like an 11 11 and a half inch beard anyway and he said no actually some of that has it almost like burns off from walking in the snow and the ice and stuff like that, that it gets so cold that it just, like you said, it's very coarse hair anyway. It just bristles Mm -hmm. up and and falls right off. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I could definitely see that for sure, you know, definitely. And when we get some of those harsher winters here in Michigan, which we've been fortunate lately. but Yes, this year we've been very, very fortunate. (laughs) Yeah. So what's the... Do you age your birds at all? I guess there's really no way to tell or is there? Is there a way to even age a bird? I kind of just go by spur length. Um but I have no I have no knowledge of like, you know, say you got a 2-inch spur, you know, that's a 5-year-old bird. Yeah, I, I really have no way of uh you know, no education on that. I just know you know, if I got a a, a bird with a a long beard is usually, you know, being out on state land, he's usually the first one I'll take. And, uh, um, you know, and then once I, once I get him on the ground, I just try to take a, a good idea of their, their spur length or get a, get an idea of the spur length when I get home. And that's usually how I'm judging if I've scored a mature, mature bird, uh, beard or the mature bird or not. Um, if I'm, you know, if the, the spurs are probably, you know, anywhere from an inch or more, I would say that you're probably dealing with a pretty, pretty mature bird. Right. Do you, now, do you weigh them? I've never weighed one. Uh, no, I have not. Oh, okay. So, all right, you shoot the bird, you're super excited, you're starting to come down and now it's, you know, the, the real part of the hunt. What, what do you, how are you dressing that bird out? Cause I've also heard there's, you know, several different techniques of cleaning that bird, but what's, what's your kind of go-to? Yeah, I can definitely tell you that. And I got a funny story that'll lead into this. So the first time I ever shot a bird, uh, I was out on state property and there's fields that are maintained by the DNR over there where they're actually, uh, planting food, uh, agriculture and on my way out I got this bird slung over my shoulder it was my second time ever turkey hunting and the DNR officer stops and he says oh man you got yourself a bird and I said yeah 
He said, awesome. I said, hey, you ever cleaned one before? He said, yep. He said, have you? I said, nope. I said, can you help? He said, yep. He got off his tractor and he said, give me a knife. And he showed me how to do it. And that's, that's really how I learned. So, you know, what I do is I just try to find that breastplate uh, and right where it ends, obviously towards um, the leg area or, you know, what I would kind of call like the stomach area of the bird, just like you would on on, you know, a bird that you'd cook from the store during Thanksgiving, you know, that uh, you fall that breastplate down and where it stops is where I would puncture in with a knife. And then I would just kind of cut down carefully along the edges of that breastplate and then just reach in there and just pull everything out. Okay. So are you like, are you taking the skin off or are you like pulling out each feather? How, what's that look like? Yeah, so the last two birds I've done, I've plucked the feathers. Uh, and the reason that I do that is just I, I I don't want the bird to dry out when I'm cooking it. So I try to preserve the skin as much as possible because it'll help retain some of that moisture when you're cooking it. Uh, so, so, yeah, I'll bring the bird home uh, and then just hang them up in the garage and just slowly start plucking out the feathers. It is a pretty tedious, long process, but... Uh, once you get going on it and uh, you kind of get in a groove, um, it goes pretty quick. I mean, the the key to doing it that way is grab less feathers, more feathers. Uh, it just it makes it that much harder. So if you just grab fewer feathers and just pull up, they just start to pluck out real easily. How long do you think it would take to pluck an entire bird? Oh man, it, it probably took me, I'd say about 45 minutes to pluck an entire bird out. Oh, that's, I was expecting hours. So no. 40, 45 minutes, that's perfect. Yeah, no, like I said, once you get in a groove, uh, you know, you can really start going with it. Like I said, the key to doing it that way is to grab less feathers. Okay. So, and then let's say um, I shot a bird um, and I want to keep the fan in the spurs and make, you know, make a cool wall mount or something out of it. If I'm not going to have him full body taxidermied. So what have you ever done that? And I guess what, what, what's the process there? Yeah. So I've actually done two, uh, I've done two to myself. Uh, and, uh, the first one I did, um, you know, was kind of an experiment. I just watched a ton of videos online and did, did some research. And then the second one I did actually turned out way nicer because if you look at a turkey's tail, uh, it's really got, I'm going to call it like half moons, right? So uh, a turkey's tail typically has three half moons. Uh, the first one I did, I lopped too far forward and cut off that first smaller half moon, which is really gonna, that holds a lot of the, 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 the color on a turkey fan. Um, so I try to identify where those half moons are and then cut, cut straight down. And you'll realize, I mean, you could cut more meat is better. You can always cut some off to preserve those, those turkey fans, but, uh, try to cut a little farther up, identify where those three moons are. And then, like I said, preserve that front. Uh, if you're looking at a turkey fan hung up, um, on a wall, uh, you know, preserve that first half moon, which is the smallest of the three, and that's going to help you get some of your color. And then once you clean that off, uh, the next thing that you want to do is uh, that that fan, that, that first half moon, you, you'll be able to cut off. 
uh, and it'll still hold uh, hold in place. So you'll actually, what I did is I removed that off and then I cleaned off as much meat as I possibly could. Now it's, it's key when you're doing a fan um, to lay it out on a piece of cardboard and kind of peg it down. So I just take thumbtacks and fan it out as far as it'll go without looking at, without it starting to look like, um, like you're purposely trying to fan it out and make it look bigger. Sure. But yeah. I just try to make those bottom feathers on that half moon level and then just tack it with, uh, with thumbtacks. Because if you don't do that and it dries, you'll never be able to, to shape it. And that's, and you dry that out with, uh, what is that? Bore? What is that stuff? Borax. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Borax. Is that, is that yep. what you used? Yeah. So what I'll do is, uh, yeah, I'll pin it and then I'll just cover that whole section that came off. And, and the key thing is to get as much meat as you possibly can off that tail. Cause if not, then it'll start to stink. Uh, and like I said, the first one I did was an experiment and it definitely, I definitely realized real quick that I had left too much meat on that thing. <laughs> was it in um, the house? It smelled pretty right. No, no, no. It's, uh, I got them hung up in the, in the garage, but, uh, no, I, I pulled the borax off and I'm like, Oh man, what's that smell? And, uh, that's when, um, I actually got rid of that first half moon on that first one I did. I didn't realize that, uh, I had cut too, too much into that, that first half moon and lost that section off that, that tail mount. But, um, but yeah, like clean as much as you can off. Just, I just load it up, cover it in borax, and just leave it for uh, a couple days, and that borax will just suck the moisture right out of that meat and dry it all out, and then you can kind of go back and, and cut some more of that meat away. I would assume it's a little easier to cut, too, after it's all dried out. Yeah, it is, and it, it kind of gives you a better idea where you need to cut so you're not cutting too much, but, uh, but yeah, it does get a little easier to cut. You just kind of use a razor blade and... Um, it'll start to peel, you know, peel off with, uh, with that sharpened knife. Right. So, okay. Now with like the spurs and the feet, do you keep those or what do you do with those? Yeah. So I have, um, I've never really, I've never really done anything with the spurs other than leave them on the feet. So I basically just cut the feet right at that first joint where they bend uh, on their leg and set them aside and they dry out pretty quick. Um, if, yeah, you know, you can take them and, and just get a bag of borax, like a, a Ziploc bag, and put them in uh, joint side down so their feet would be sticking out of the bag, and then it'll help them dry out. But that's how I've preserved them. I've never pulled the spurs off and done anything fancy with them. I know there are uh, a lot of cool uh, turkey mounts where you can kind of, cut the spurs off the legs and incorporate the spurs into the mount. And it does look pretty cool. It's just something I've never done. Okay. So I just have a couple sets of turkey feet just sitting on my workbench. <laughs> that doesn't freak anybody <laughs> out when they come over? No, no. Some people, definitely, it's a conversation starter for sure. Yeah, that, that'd be kind of cool for me, especially here in my house, is to maybe just leave it on the coffee table. And let yeah. <laughs> you know the in-laws come over because they're not into hunting. So that would be pretty funny. So that's very cool. So we got the bird down. We got him cleaned up. Now it's time to cook this thing. And this is kind of what I've been wanting to get at because that's my one of my biggest things is how to how do we eat these animals that we're allowed to 
harvest. So what's your kind of maybe go-to method and, and walk me through that, that whole process. Yeah. So what I like to do, um, what I like to do when I get a bird is I like to split the bird basically right down the spine. So after I've plucked it and I've gotten everything cleaned off, tail fans off, legs are off, and I'm just basically dealing with a plucked bird, um, I'll take that bird and split it right on the spine. So now you have, uh, I have a full breast and a leg. Actually, I have two. You know, um, you got two breasts, two legs attached, and then I'll basically cut the legs off. So uh, the reason that I kind of take that method is, A, it kind of stretches that bird out a little bit. You're not cooking it all at once. And then definitely for, for like people who are new to turkey hunting and new to turkey cooking turkeys, it, you know, if you mess up the first one, you're not messing up the entire bird. So you can kind of have a second go at it. Um, through, through experience, I have now started cooking the legs completely separate from the breast just because of how tough they are. The first time I cooked a bird, I tried to cook the leg with the breast meat and uh, just like you would a traditional style turkey in the oven. And it came out, the legs on, on wild turkeys are so hard, it was almost like chewing on a piece of wood. So you really, yeah, you, you got to slow cook those legs. I mean, I know a lot of people, they will, they won't even, they won't even mess with the leg meat because it's so full of tendons and, and very, very tough meat. But I found like, if you put it in like a, a slow cooker and just slow cook them, you can get it to the point where that meat just falls right off those legs and then you can make turkey soup with it. And it's actually really good. Hmm. So are you, are you baking the breasts? Are you grilling them, frying them? What, what are you doing there? Yep. So, uh, the last one, uh, that I got, I did, um, well, actually the last one I got, I'm getting ready to cook now. Funny that you mentioned, I'm getting ready to soak it. Uh, I just got a smoker. So I'm going to try, uh, I got, you know, a half a breast basically soaking in some dry rub. Uh, I'm going to try to smoke it over the weekend, weather permitting if it's nice out. But, uh, the first Turkey I did, yeah, I did. Uh, I just put it in the oven, um, and just kept basting it. You know, every, periodically, you know, every, you know, half hour, 20 minutes, um, just go in and try to uh, get, uh, it's like a turkey baster. Just get a turkey baster and just keep basting that turkey to try to help hold hold some of that moisture in, in that bird. Because you got to you gotta remember, too, like with the method that I take plucking the feathers, um, some of the skin does tear. So you'll lose some of that. So uh, basting it will help retain some of that moisture and keep it from drying out when you when you uh when you bake it okay so are you th- are you putting it in a one of those big tinfoil pans or uh a dutch oven in the, in the i oven? got a dutch oven okay yeah i got a dutch oven so i'll put it in the dutch oven and uh just you know kind of fill the bottom probably a quarter way with uh with some juice uh, and then some vegetables and just let that thing cook up just let it go all day. Very, very cool. Well, is there anything that you think we we may might have missed that you want to go over with turkeys? Uh, the one thing um, that I didn't mention when doing the turkey tail, which is another kind of critical point to preserve uh, that that fan, because that you know they do look very nice when they're done. So you want to make sure 
that you do them right is the one thing that I didn't mention is once that turkey tail is all dried out, uh, what I like to do is I like to get some just some auto bondo and then basically put it right where the that tail fan would have attached to to that bird and what that'll do is that'll make a, a hardened spot and you kind of want to do it on both ends um you mix that bondo up it's got the you know the red and then the you know it's the, the gray part you just mix those two together and then slide that on there and it dries pretty quickly and you want to do that on both sides and when you go to mount it you'll be able to drill through there and you don't have to worry about damaging it oh that's that's a that's a very good point there because i would have never i would have never thought about that Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was something that I learned um, the first time I did mine. So, quick tip. There you go. Perfect. Well, I do greatly appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, and I greatly appreciate you giving me the opportunity. It's uh, it's been it's been fun. And there you have it, folks. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I know I did. It's super cool to talk to Aaron uh, and get his perspective on some things because. I did learn a lot, and I hope you guys did too. It's cool to find the little tips and tricks on on what these other guys are doing and, and how they're getting things done. And Aaron is getting it done on public land, so that's super, super cool. And that's, you know, that's awesome of him, of taking advantage of the public land stuff that we do have in this great state of Michigan. So I encourage you, with with all this stuff going on with COVID-19, um, you've, you've heard it once, you've heard it a thousand times, be safe. This isn't a place for me to lecture you. So I'm not, I'm going to leave it at that. Just be safe. Do what is best for yourself and your family get outside, go do something. It's, it's almost Turkey season. It's almost mushroom season there. The woods are coming alive. Everything is starting to wake back up, which is super, super cool to me. And it's a super fun time of the year to get outside, do something active, watch the woods come alive, but just stay safe. That's all I ask. So please give this podcast a rating or review. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it and be forever in your debt. Like I said last week, if you guys are looking for other stuff, check out the Sportsman's Nation Network. There's tons and tons of information on there for anybody and everybody if you want to learn about absolutely anything outdoor related. So go check those guys out. They're pumping out. Dan is doing a phenomenal job of pumping out great stuff all the time. Go check those guys out. But if you could give this podcast a rating or review, I would greatly appreciate it. So until next time, I'll see you guys next week. Stay safe. Be careful. Be careful.